Now, self-righteousness is poison. Self-righteousness is poison. That attitude that says, I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, It's actually the the great joy robber in life. Um, I think most of my unhappiness in life has been caused by my own self-righteousness. Sometimes over years, hanging on to, you were wrong and I was right. Replaying that event again and again in my mind, though the other person has long since forgotten it. It's the great relationship ruiner. Most of our arguments come from self-righteousness. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm just not going to give in. Even past the point when it just rather seems ridiculous. It's also the the great church divider. Uh, It's the attitude behind a lot of our anger. Uh, How dare you treat me like that? Or within a church context, we begin to look down on one another. I mean, why aren't you doing as much as I'm doing? Why aren't you serving as hard as I'm serving? You don't appear to be doing the right things, dressed in the right way, behaving as you should. It's the great church divider. And self-righteousness appears to have been a problem for the church that the Apostle Paul is writing to in AD 57, a church in Rome. Let me just read you a, a verse later in his letter. It's chapter 14 and verse 10. He says this to the Roman Christians. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It looks like the Roman Christians were looking down on one another. It was a church made up of both Christians from a Jewish background, who'd grown up with God's Old Testament law, and Christians from a non-Jewish, which is in the Bible called Gentile background. And it looks like the Jewish Christians were maybe looking down on the Gentiles. They hadn't got the same religious heritage. They they weren't behaving in the right and proper way that they should, according to the Old Testament, as the Jews saw it. And the Gentile Christians, they were probably looking down on the Jews. They were a bit stuffy and old-fashioned. They were keeping those laws that, because Jesus had come, you, you didn't need to keep anymore. And the result was the church was in danger of being divided. And so Paul writes... To, to, to counter their self-righteousness. But if you see self-righteousness within the church is a problem, there's also self-righteousness against those outside the church. Now, last week we looked at the end of Romans chapter 1, and in that Paul talks about God's righteous anger being revealed against a world that rejects him. It's revealed as God gives us over to what we want. So the world is full of people getting their heart's desires behaving in ways that are against God's natural order, Uh, not even being able to comprehend what right and wrong is anymore, giving approval to the very things that God says we shouldn't be doing, and not having minds that can even work out or even faintly interested in whether God exists. Now, now the danger Paul obviously recognizes, having heard him teach that to a group of Christians, is they might well think, well, yeah, It's a really bad world out there. But praise God I'm not like them. I'm a member of Chessington Evangelical Church. I'm not part of that debauched world out there. No, no. I'm totally different. And Paul says that's a very dangerous attitude. Look what he says in chapter 2 verse 1. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. 
because you who pass judgment do the same things. And so what we have this morning is God's antidote to self-righteousness within the church and against those outside the church. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, this morning might be a big apology to you. But because what we're saying is we're sorry for the way we've been judging you. Because we're just the same, according to God. Three things that are the antidote to our self-righteousness. Here's the first heading. You have no excuse. God's kindness is for repentance. God's kindness is for repentance. Now, in, in our household, I'm the table manners police. We're like, we're like a traditional you know, knife and fork household. You know, royal manners, not, not quite like the queen. We're definitely not cowboys around the campfire, get your baked beans in your mouth any old way. That's unacceptable. But the problem is with being the table manners police is as my kids point out to me that the reason that I have the beady eye of etiquette pointing at them is that I have shoveled my food down my face so quickly that I finished considerably before anyone else. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? That's what Paul is pointing out. We spend our lives looking down on people for doing the very things that we do. The person who forces their way into the queue of traffic before us is pushy and and we just can't quite stop ourselves closing the gap a little bit because they're so arrogant. But but when we do it, we're really rather clever. (laughs) We were in a rush. We've saved 10 seconds off our journey. Or or, or the person who, who lies to us, they break our trust. We just never can quite trust them again. We're hurt. But when we do it, oh, we didn't want to hurt their feelings. It was an unavoidable situation. We just had to say that. You see, our tolerance for sin, for wrongdoing in others, intolerance rather for wrongdoing in others, is only matched by our leniency towards ourselves. And so Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another... You're condemning yourself because you do exactly the same things. And the problem is that God judges us by his criteria, not by ours. But by actually by the truth of the way we live our lives, not by the way we perceive ourselves. My favorite example of this was a, a woman a few years ago who uttered this immortal sentence. Listen carefully. A number of us have been talking together and we've decided that she is a gossip. (laughs) Do you see how that works? You see, we might be able to con ourselves we don't do anything wrong, but we can't con God. Do you see what Paul says in verse 2? Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And God knows us inside out. He holds us to account for the real us, the real you and me, not the person we like to think we are, and we are all guilty. That, that was the point of Paul's list in Romans 1, 29 to 30. Uh, last week we saw he sort of mingled Premier League sins we all know are wrong with things we don't even give a second thought about. Just let me read it to you again. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness. Oh, I'm not wicked. Evil, I'm not evil. Greedy. Oh, but I'm not depraved. They're full of, oh, envy. I haven't murdered anyone. Strife. Oh, that could have been my kitchen this morning. Deceit. Oh, malice. Well, oh, gossip. Slanderer. I'm not a God-hater. Have I been insolent or arrogant? Have I ever been boastful? 
Have I ever disobeyed my parents? Did you see? There's, there's no scale of sin here. There's no moral ladder where I can put myself and climb up and then just look down on everyone else and go, thank goodness I'm not like them. No, there's one standard, and we're all guilty. And the reason that we haven't actually experienced God's punishment, the reason actually that we, we live and we enjoy the beautiful sunshine day by day, is not because we deserve it, it's because of God's character. Look what Paul says in verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, now if you're not a Christian here, you need to know this. God is not calling on you to sort your life out. Now, you might have thought that's what you come to church for. You get a nice pep talk and you discover how to be a nicer person with Jesus. But that's not why God is being kind to us. He's being kind to lead us to repentance. You see, the, the, the heart of becoming a Christian is not sorting your life out, but realizing that you can't sort your life out. It's turning. That's what repentance means. Turning from a life that you know is filled with wrongdoing and things you're ashamed of and things you're guilty of towards the God who is kind and compassionate and patient for you. And that kindness, compassion, and patience is seen primarily in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's what God wants for everyone. They'd see they can't sort themselves out, but that he is there for them. And if we won't turn to Jesus Christ, well, in the end, if, if we won't see what we're really like, and it's such a relief, isn't it? Isn't it such a relief to realize you don't need to pretend you're somebody else? You don't need to pretend you're better than you are. The God who knows you completely inside out, who knows exactly what you're like, says, please admit that and turn to me. And when you do, you find I'm patient and compassionate and kind and forbearing. But if you don't, he is perfectly just. So verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, if if we just feel self-righteous and look down on others, if we won't turn from what we know to be wrong in our lives, if we just compare ourselves to others all the time, well, in the end, we will face his right punishment for that because God doesn't show favoritism. That's the second thing. You see, God's, God's patient with us so we might repent. So we've got no excuse. Here's the second reason we've got no excuse. God doesn't show favoritism. That's what the next section's about. Look down at verse 11, where Paul ends this section by saying, for God does not show favoritism. He, he starts with a quote from the Old Testament, the first section of the Bible in verse 6. Here, here are the reason that God doesn't show favoritism. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, I I judge people by all sorts of criteria. You know, whether they're my friends or family, whether I know them personally, whether it even benefits me personally. So uh, So the mechanic who's, you know, cheap, who I call mate, and he says, uh, could you pay me cash? Because they don't want to do the old VAT thing. Yeah. They're, they're, they're brilliant, of course. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. That was a cheap service. Well done, me. Aren't I clever? But Amazon, 
What an evil organisation. Not paying proper tax to the government by going overseas. See, I judge people according to what benefits me. The problem is God's a lot more consistent. I have double standards. He, he doesn't. Therefore, there aren't any excuses in his courtroom. We, we won't just be tried on what we are happy to be seen in public. No, all our dirty washing will be there. It'll be out in the open. One day, the whole of our lives will be exposed in more detail than you or I care to remember it. Before, before a perfect God with, with perfect standards. Uh, Paul gives us his standards in, in verse 7 and 8. Let me read you verse 7 and 8. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. So, so when God judges people, it'll be those who... Literally, by patient endurance, in patient endurance, have tried to do good, who've sought his glory, who've sought to honor God, who've longed for immortal life with God, they are given eternal life in relationship with God, life forever in relationship with him. Now, now do you see there in verse 7, it's not that they've achieved those things. It's not those who are good, who are honorable, who have achieved God's glory, notes those for whom that is the longing of their heart. However far back they are in achieving those things, that's what they long for. And it's not that they earn eternal life. No, they are given eternal life. So how do you know a, a true Christian on Judgment Day? How you write with God? Their heart's desire will be to have known and pleased God. That'll be the priority of their heart. Whereas those who basically live for themselves, however polished their sort of religious veneer, will find that they experience God's righteous anger, his wrath and anger. So God doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care about your upbringing. He doesn't care about your religious duty. None of that makes any difference at all. He cares about your heart. And the results come in verse 9 and 10. So verse 9 says, there's trouble and distress. And Paul says that's both for the religious Jew, who outwardly looks like they're doing all the right things, and for the pagan Gentile, who just doesn't even care about the God of the Bible. But if your heart's desire is for God and not for self, it'll be glory, honor, peace. Both for the religious Jew, who realizes their religion is no good to them, but heart's desire is, is to please God through Jesus. And for the Gentile pagan who could have lived a, an incredibly awful life according to the Bible. But has come now to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their heart's desire is set to please God. You see, you see in the end, the issue is not our religious performance. It's what we long for in our heart. And our problem is God doesn't show favoritism. And that was a shock for Paul's first readers. But because they thought, if I'm a Jew by birth, that means that, that God's going to be on my side. That's just the way it is. And so Paul gives them the third reason we have no excuse. So first, we've got no excuse because actually God has delayed his judgment so you might repent and turn to him. Secondly, we've got no excuse because God doesn't have favorites. 
It doesn't matter what your background is. It's your heart he's interested in. And therefore, thirdly, you've got no excuse because God judges our hearts, not our habits. Uh, look, at, look at verse 12 with me. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you... That's verse 17. Let's try verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So uh, if you're a Gentile and you haven't had God's law from birth, you're still going to be judged. And if you're a Jew and you've had God's law from birth, you're going to be judged by that law. Because this judgment is according to the same standards, our hearts. Uh, Paul goes on to say, verse 13, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. In other words, it's not having the law that counts. It's whether you do it. Now, a few years ago, I did the classic with gym membership. Don't know if you've done the classic with gym membership. You think, I need to get fit. I'll join the gym. Yep, it'll motivate me. Like an, a building with machines motivates you. And you go along, don't you, for a while? I mean, you do the exercises. Occasionally, you find yourself sitting on the end of the weight bench or stationary on the rowing machine, watching the news or the music video while people sweat around you. But, but you, you get on, you do it for a bit, don't you? But, but what happens is, the gym doesn't motivate you. And after a while, you stop going quite as regularly. And then after 18 months, you suddenly realize you've been paying for the gym for a year when you haven't been once. But because it's not having gym membership that makes you fit, it's actually being motivated to genuinely get down and do the exercise. And so Paul says, I'm not interested. Paul, God's not interested in, in what group you grew up in, what religious label you attached to yourself. He's not even interested even if you've, you've sat in a church building every Sunday since, since birth. Or this is the first time you've sat in a church meeting for a long time and, and you're already regretting it. No, Paul is interested in your heart not just your habits. And you, your heart, well, it'll be shown by your desire to please God. Uh, he, he illustrates that first by showing how the, the pagan Gentile, who hasn't had God's law, can be in. And then he shows how the, the Jew who has had God's law can be out with God. Look at verse 14. Uh, look down. There are no brackets in the original. And look carefully, because I'm going to read it wrongly. But I think as I read it wrongly, you'll see that I'm reading it right. Indeed, where Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things required of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Do you see how I changed that? So Gentiles didn't have the law by nature as they grew up. But, but as they do things that God has asked for his people to do, they do the law, they show that their hearts want to please him. So verse 15, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times defending them. So it says, Paul, that Gentiles who actually are seeking to follow God genuinely, that those who try and do what God has told us we should do, they reveal a heart that is sensitive to him. 
a heart whose conscience is convicted when they disobey God, and a heart also that whose conscience is defended by being reassured that God is the God of compassion and love and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ when they're feeling guilty before him. Now, we're going to see in a moment that a heart like that can only be given us by God through the work of his Holy Spirit. So, So Paul says, look, there are Gentiles who've had no history with God, and actually their hearts show they're genuinely for him. But then he rules out Jews who have hearts of hypocrisy. Uh, Have a look at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you've instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish or literally of the stupid, a teacher of little children because you have the law, I have in the law the embodiment of knowledge or truth. Now look, those are all privileges the Jews had. They had God's Old Testament law. They should have been the people who were teaching others. The problem was their history was a bit different. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery... Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? That's not a a random list of things that Paul's chosen. That's a, a brief catalog of the typical crimes of God's Old Testament people, the people of Israel, throughout their history. They had had all of God's law, They thought that they were superior because they had it. But actually, they didn't keep it. Or they they might not have burgled a house, but they had no problem fiddling their tax form or downloading the odd film on the the sly. They they might not have left their wife, but they had no problem glancing up and down, wondering what a a newer, younger model would be like. Uh, They might not have set up a statue in their garden and started worshipping it, but they had no problem pouring their time and their money into into their house or their hobbies. And the result was, says Paul, you boast in the law of God, but you actually dishonor God by breaking it. The the Jewish nation should have been a a wonderful advert for how loving and good and compassionate God is and how great it is to live his way, but what had resulted, verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That they made the Lord a laughingstock. But because people thought, well, if that's their God, well, clearly he's not worth taking very seriously. Now, we need to understand God's not like a bumbling old grandparent. You know, you know the bumbling old grandparent? I'm sorry if you are one. The. Um, but, but they, they sort of, they're in denial about what their grandchildren are really like. You know, so their three-year-old grandson will come up and go, I hate you, granddad, and kick them in the shins. And they'll go, oh, he's a lovely boy. Or, or worse, you know, their, their teenager will be, will be dealing weed on the corner of the street. And they'll, they'll, they'll have him in and say, oh, you know, I love these new air fresheners. Come in, son. They just ignore what really is going on in the, in the life of their children. And, and I think sometimes 
we think God's like that. That's the attitude Paul's arguing against, that, that God, the bungling grandparent, is very happy with you if you sort of turn up to his building once in a while and you're vaguely associated with him and, you know, you have some sort of religious veneer. You, you can know there, there are sort of ten commandments aren't there and, and yeah, I can sing the books of the Bible because I learned that in Sunday school when I was five. I must be okay with God. Or in this case, I'm a Jew and I've, I've got the law. But Paul says, no, your religious heritage counts for nothing. Look what he says over the page in verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision are a law breaker. Very telling. Circumcision was was the sign God had given his people for the men to be marked as being in the people of God. And Paul says, that outward sign doesn't matter at all. You can have all the law you want, you can be outwardly respectable in whatever way you want, but what matters is whether you you do it, whether your heart is changed and you long to please God, and that's demonstrated in a a life that's changed. (laughs) I I was in uh, uh, North Wales once, driving along a road in in a a, a traffic jam, and um, I've been there for quite a while. It's quite a long traffic jam. And there was a guy, a white van man. White van man was coming from the left out of a turning. And I, you know that stage where you think, I'm not going to make eye contact. Not going to make eye contact because I'm not moving. There is no way I am parting the six millimeters between me and the car in front because I've been here a long time. Anyway, so I drove past white van man. And just as I drove past, I thought, I better... I can't resist looking. And there was Hugh Davis from our church in Exeter, waving at me (laughs) from the van, 300 miles from where I last saw him, usually. You can be holding the biggest Bible in the world. Maybe you can even be a pastor, says Paul. And it counts for nothing if your heart's not changed. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So a true member of the people of God is not about your religious heritage. It's about a heart that aches to obey the Lord. And a heart like that, says Paul, is not created with the use of a sharp knife. It's created by the work of God's Spirit as we come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That that word inwardly is the same word as secrets in verse 16. God changes the secret desires of our hearts. And only he can do that. When you truly experience God's love in the Lord Jesus, he always changes your heart. He always changes what you desire. That's what we're praying for Isaac this morning. Yeah, Chris and Holly can bring up Isaac, teaching about Jesus. They can can bring him to church each Sunday. They can take him along to the youth work. They can read the Bible with him, but they cannot change his heart. Only God can do that. That's what we're longing for him that his heart would be changed so he would come to know God's love and love God genuinely in return. And Paul says all your outward religion is useless. You could sit in a church meeting for the rest of your life, singing songs, 
Now, some of you could do with singing up, having walked around this morning. Singing songs, and it won't turn you into a Christian any more than, than going into your garage, though no one can actually get into their garage anymore, certainly can't get the car into it. Going to the garage, sitting there for the next 20 years and going, vroom, 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 will make you a motor car. It won't change the essence of who you are. Only God can change you on the inside. And how do you know if God's changed you on the inside? Well, look at the, the it's very telling, the last few words of, of the last sentence of chapter 2. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Are you more concerned with what other people think of you, or with what God thinks of you? One of the saddest ways I see this happen is that, that we have some folk who only come to church when their parents are visiting from overseas because they're worried about what their parents think of them, not what God thinks of them. I, and if it's other people who matter, not God, then what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll do just enough to, to appear right before other people, won't we? And in general, I think in, in the Christian world today, to do enough, that means turning up to church probably two times a month, maybe one more if you're keen, if you're very keen every, every Sunday. It's sort of going to a midweek group where they look at the Bible, if, if you can make it, if, if there's not another priority on. It's generally keeping sex for within marriage, uh, only swearing mildly unless you're in private, no obvious drunkenness and don't use drugs. And in general, if you do that, other people will think, oh yeah, that looks like a Christian. What you do behind the closed door of your house, that's up to you, mate. <laughs> God can't see. Well, they can't see anyway. You see, if what other people think of you matters, you'll just keep that standard. And the great thing is, is I think that as long as you've got enough people who agree with you, then, then that's okay. So I think in our church, there's, there's like the keener group and the less keener group. In the keener group, there are the people who, who volunteer more and who are there every Sunday, often twice on Sunday, who, who are on the rotors, who are at the prayer meeting each month. And the danger of the keener group is they all look down on the less keen group. Oh yes, we are better than them. And they get frustrated because the less keen group never turn up to the prayer meeting. And then they think, oh, as long as there are enough of us, we can all look down on the others. But then there's the less keen group. Yep. And they turn up a couple of times a month. They make the prayer meeting never, maybe once a year. Um, they volunteer when they can. And it's not that they're less self-righteous than the Kina group. It's just they've got a different group of friends. Their praise is still from people. And that different group of friends, they're the ones that praise each other. Oh, yeah, you, you can't go too often. It's too busy. And, you know, you've got to, don't want to be too religious. And you don't want to get, you know, you've got to take your kids to the clubs on the Sunday, haven't you, and the sport. And as long as you can find enough people who affirm you in that, you're all okay. So we've got people in the Kina group thinking, oh, no. They're, they're so bad. And we're self-righteously affirming each other. And the people in the less keener group are going, oh, they're all a bit OTT about this religion stuff. Let's just talk to one another and affirm us in our half-heartedness. You're all wrong. I'm wrong. Because what we should want is praise from God. And if you want praise from God, what we'll be longing for? We'll be longing to know him. We'll be longing to obey him. We'll be craving his word. We'll be wanting to be like Jesus and to love Jesus more than anything else. And we won't be looking for contentment in this world. And we won't be judging others. Because our heart will realize that is all a gift from him.
Because I want to end by, by just offering you some hope, some simple hope. You see, you can't change your heart. If, you, if you're not a Christian here, I started by saying this is an apology to you. There is an apology to you. I'm really sorry if you felt judged or condemned by Christians or looked down upon. Because self-righteousness shuts you off from the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ actually as much as sin does. Self-righteousness is a sin. And, and I want to apologize for that. But there is someone who can change your heart and can change our hearts, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great heart changer. And as we go through Romans, we're going to see he does everything that we cannot. Where we sin, he is obedient. Where we can't keep God's law, he does keep God's law. Where we are selfish, he selflessly goes to the cross and dies in our place. So we are unrighteous, he makes us righteous with God. And where we can't change our hearts, he pours his spirit into our hearts so that we know that he loves us and we begin to love him in return. Jesus, the heart changer, is our only hope. So whether you're here and and you look down on others because how much you do, or whether you're here and you're not even a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to go back to Jesus. You need to go back to him with a repentant heart. You need to go back to him with the hands that recognize the only thing you take into your relationship with God is your own sin. And to say to him, "I I come to you, Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you are the only person who can make me acceptable to God, that only as I experience your love can I be the person that you call me to be, that there's nothing better about me than anyone else. Please assure me of your love and change me to be more like you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that a relationship with you is not about what we do, but what you have done for us in Christ. Please help us not to look for our praise from people. Please would we not look around for our group that encourages us that we're okay, whatever we're doing, whatever level of Christian service we feel we have achieved. But please look, will we look for our praise from you? And because we know that you're the one who knows us inside out, please would we be honest with you, honest with our failures and our struggles, honest about our sin and our self-righteousness. And at the moment we find ourselves looking down on others, please expose our hearts and fix our eyes on Jesus that we might see that we are saved by him through grace alone. For his name's sake, amen.